0: Welcome back to the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast, where we aim to bring you the latest evidence and research to enable you to perform at your best, prevent injury and recover well. The Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast is brought to you by Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre. I'm Anthony Lance, physiotherapist, co-founder of SSPC and your host for today. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 22. We had a great response to the recent two episodes on total knee joint replacements with orthopedic surgeon, Chris Jones. So we thought we'd keep up our knee theme and talk about another massive knee issue in society today. And that's ACL injuries and reconstructions. The past episodes on knee replacements were more for the middle-aged to older demographic that we treat but ACL injuries are definitely more so directed to the younger sports person, and it just seems like we're dealing with younger and younger people that are facing this devastating ACL injury dilemma. We've seen some brilliant technological advancements over the years when it comes to joint replacements, but when we talk about ACLs, it's not so much the technological advancements – It's more our advanced knowledge related to the rehabilitation that we do that has forced us into a massive rethink on how we approach and manage our ACLs. So we've got an incredible opportunity today to talk about all these developments with sports physio and ACL guru, Mick Hughes, and he'll talk us through every stage from injury to return to sport. And in fact, for the second time in a row, we covered so much ground in this interview that I've had to break it up into two podcasts. So in this first one, I talked to Mick about why Australia has the greatest rate in the world of doing ACL reconstructions. We talk about why we're seeing more and more ACL injuries and really importantly, why we're seeing an alarming increase in young children having ACL injuries and RICO's. We also cover the risk factors for ACL injuries, we go through the signs and symptoms we look for to diagnose it, why there's often minimal or no pain after you rupture your ACL, and a whole lot more, and that's just in episode 22, with more of Mick Hughes' wisdom to follow in episode 23 as well. So before getting into today's episode, if you're enjoying our podcast, please don't forget to hit the follow button on our home site, and that'll make sure you don't miss an episode. And it's also great if you've got any comments or feedback, leave them on our site. But for now, let's get into episode 22 with Mick Hughes. In today's episode, we welcome one of the leaders in our physio industry, Mick Hughes. Many of the ACL podcasts are actually directed to us as physios, and there's not many around to help educate those of you that might need or are contemplating or have even already had an ACL reconstruction. And we know in our physio world that if we can educate you all better, then we've done a better job and we're going to have better outcomes. So it's a fantastic opportunity to have someone on board today who's devoted so much of his clinical career to ACLs, Uh, Mick has been a physio at the highest level of sport as head physio for the Collingwood Magpies netball team, where I'm sure he saw a few ACLs, um, along with being physio for multiple elite junior sports teams. He's educated tens of thousands, probably more uh, physios around the world, and he's also got that rare double expertise of exercise science and physio. Um, So we'll delve into a bit of that, but Mick's love over the years has funneled into a ACL Rehabilitation. Uh, And together with colleague Randall Cooper, he's developed a bit of a Bible that we all use called the ACL Rehabilitation Guide. Um, Certainly everyone here at SSPC uses it for our ACL programs. And Mick's educating physios all over the world uh, with ACLs through his uh, role as Director of of Learn.Physio. So uh, welcome, Mick Hughes, to the podcast.
1: What a wind up. Thanks very much. That's That's a hell of a lead in. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate appreciate the kind words, mate. It's, it's nice to be here and, um, yeah, be able to talk shop and hopefully help some of your, um, yeah, patients uh, get a little bit more information to help them with their rehab journeys or even their treatment choice decisions. You know, like we, we know, we talk a hell of a lot about it, but, yeah, it's not, it's not all um, doom and gloom when you have an ACL injury these days and, and there's a bit more choice available for some people. So, yeah, no, it's a, I'm, I'm stoked to be here, so thanks for ask, asking me to come on board.
0: Yeah, great. Um, and look, certainly, you know, as I said to you beforehand, I, I don't think that, you know, there's so much directed at physios, which you've done well in educating all of us. But this is um, down to our patients trying to educate them better. But look, before we get right into it, can you start by telling us how you went from a country New South Wales boy into the ACL physio guru yeah. you are today? What was the pathway?
1: Um, I start tripped and stumbled a fair, a fair bit of that journey. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, yeah, to be honest, I wasn't the, the greatest of all um, high school students. I was probably a bit more interested in, in playing sport and socialising with my mates rather than sort of hitting the books and studying too hard. And um, which which then sort of, in, in a way, and, and certainly um, the, the silver lining to that kind of U10, uh, 11, 12 journey um, was that I, I got into exercise science first, um, albeit on the back of a principal's recommendation. Um, and a year off after high school right. um, doing a pt personal trainer's diploma because I didn't even get enough marks to get into exercise science back right. in, uh, back in 1999. so um, yeah of, yeah so anyway that, that sort of opened up those doors and I really um, I really yeah, fell in love with the whole exercise science world and and um, the general health principles about getting fit getting strong and being able to help people um, yeah, rehabilitate injuries and I had a couple of placements in physio clinics in my last year of exercise science, which really sort of opened up my eyes to the physio world after having a few injuries myself playing basketball as a kid and um, just sort of really strengthened that uh, desire to be a physio one day. And so after coming, you know, most 22, 23, 24 year olds head off to the UK and do a UK, UK uh, visa stint. We can't sort of do that at the moment, unfortunately for those kids, But um, back in the day, I went over and had a good 12 months over in the UK and and did that and, and came back with my tail between my legs and, you know, 25 and not really having much of uh, life direction at that stage, thought I'd better pull my finger out and have a crack at physio and got, I, I got accepted and it was the only physio school that said yes to my application. Right. Enough. Yeah. Um, so James Cook University up in Townsville um, was the only uh know physio school that said yes to one of my many offers all around australia that i i I sent my application to Mm -hmm. and they said yes and i packed up my little ute subaru brumba ute and drove up to um, townsville where yeah i I started my physio studies and finished um finished there after four years and um yeah so that's kind of how i sort of became a physio it was a bit of a long-winded journey compared to most but one that was uh yeah really
0: enjoyable Yeah well thankfully they let you in because uh, I don't know where we'd be with ACLs without you but look tell me quickly how what fostered your love of ACLs how did you end up um, really being so deeply involved in the ACL world?
1: Yeah I I think because I my self-assessment of my I guess probably a couple of years out having a few experiences with ACL injuries and rehabbing a few and um, probably got to probably five or six years out and sort of realised I wasn't that crash hot at them, to be honest. <laughs> so my, um, I'd started doing a Masters of Sports Physiotherapy. So I was getting a bit of a deeper understanding of rehab and I ticked off level one and level two sports and moved to Melbourne. And and it was, it was then when um, I got the job at Collingwood, actually, that I thought, oh, God, I, I better sharpen up my game here. You know, like ACL injuries are going to be probably a, a thing I'm going to have to deal with. Um, you know, even from a from a prevention point of view, um, absolutely from prevention point of view, but also to a rehab point of view, because realistically we we're probably going to cop one a year, um, so I better do a good job of that. Um, and funnily enough, when I signed, when I turned up to the club, the first person I met was um, a player that came over from another club, and she was uh, at the stage uh, six months post-op ACL Rico. Um, so I got sort of thrust into that um, rehab world and really trying to optimise rehab outcomes and and uh, better myself as a clinician, but also, yeah, take a really deep dive into the ACL world. And, and being at Collingwood, I had the luxury of um, having access to the AFL physios and their uh, wealth of experience and all the club doctors and strength and conditioning coaches there. So I was able to bounce a lot of ideas off um, some of the best in the business, and, and that's where I, I actually had a chance meeting with Randall Cooper one day because I started working with his original Melbourne ACL Rehab Guide, which had been around for a few years. And um, we had a meeting one day to talk shop about the player that was rehabbing. And that's kind of like where that conversation started and started rolling. And one thing led to another. And, you know, we're, we're, we're producing the Melbourne ACL Rehab Guide version 2.0. And um, yeah, so that was kind of like the, the the guts of how that passion really started because I, I thought I was crap at it. And I thought I <laughs> I better start lifting my game, and that's that's where I went down a rabbit hole one day of ACL papers, and one thing led to another, and here we are.
0: Here you are, yeah. Well, yeah. let's um let's start simply with the ACL. Everybody knows what an ACL is. What why is it so critical? Like we've got a PCL, and that that's often mm. or that's rarely operated on. We've got medial and lateral ligaments which are often damaged in sport, but what is yeah. it about the ACL? Why is it so critical to us?
1: Yeah, it's it's. Largely due to, I mean, to be fair, like it's, um, it's just another, it's a piece of, it's a ligament, it's a, you know, three centimetre piece of tissue that sort of helps control the knee, much like the PCL, um, and the medials, but the the ACL certainly got a really important role. More so, you know, it, it helps stop the translation of the tibia on the femur, so it stops that forward movement of the shin on the thigh bone. But from, I guess, from the, a more advanced point of view, it certainly controls a lot more rotational forces, which for, uh, for athletes um, that are involved in pivoting, twisting, cutting sports, it's that lack of control when your ACL is absent and, um, you know, your neuromuscular, so your muscle system is not sort of on song um, and maybe not to the best of its ability in terms of strength, control, coordination and balance. You, you really need that extra support from that ligament to control the, the the shin bone underneath the thigh bone, particularly with those landing, cutting, pivoting, twisting movements. And that's unlike the PCL, which basically stops the, the the shin bone falling back on the thigh bone and the medial and lateral ligaments helping that sway left to right. The ACL's got that really all important role of controlling rotation in, in pivoting, twisting movement. That's why that's why it probably um, it gets a lot more credit um in research circles and um it's almost like a really uh, revered ligament i guess when it comes to the body the human body because it plays a huge role in dynamic stability well yeah sorry structural stability of the knee in those rotational pivoting movements
0: yeah, look, it certainly played an integral role in surgery in the past and I want to I want to put a stat to you which um the Medical Journal of Australia says that Australia's got the highest reported rates of ACL injury and reconstructions mm. in the world and between the years 2000 and 2015, so 15 years, the rate of reconstructions in Australians under 25 had risen 70%. Hmm. What is it with the Aussie ACL? We got yeah. some are ACLs, or are we just operating more than anyone else?
1: Yeah, I think um, yeah, There's a couple of things. There's also to New Zealand showed some similar figures to that in a in a paper. Yeah, I think it was a 10 or 15 year registry. They sort of did a they did a similar. Similar find, they found a similar finding, and over in the UK as well, they found similar kind of trends that over a ten to fifteen year window, ACL reconstructions were going through the roof. Um, Even here here in Victorian pediatric populations, over a ten year window as well, we're seeing you know big jumps in our real young kitties as well, which is really Mm. sad to see. Um, Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I think it's probably a global problem, but certainly we see a lot of it here. But yeah, yeah, really, yeah, Australia is a very active you know country. We've got lots of really great sports and active populations and probably our sports down here are quite unique, you know, netball, uh, touch football in some of our Queensland, and New South Wales states, not so much down here, but certainly AFL down here in Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia, you know, those really high pivoting, twisting, cutting demand sports where we play a lot of here. It's not that they don't play them anywhere else in the world, but we've got probably some unique sports down here that probably aren't played so much in America, Uh, the UK, Canada and and New Zealand, Um, especially when it comes to AFL, pretty much the only sport in the world that plays it. But in terms, I guess, reconstructions and and injuries, I mean, given that we do reconstruct a hell of a lot of ACLs here in Australia, I think it's a fair argument to say, even though those papers are looking at reconstruction rates, not ACL injuries, if our reconstruction rates are going up and we operate on 90, 95% of cases, it's fair to say that our ACL injuries are going up as well now there's probably a couple of two there's probably a couple of schools of thought there is that and there's you know i, I don't have any hard and fast literature on this this is more so conversations i've had with sport doctors and orthopedic surgeons and what they think's going on and the theory is is that in one sort of kettle, in one sort of uh school of, of thought is that the acl injuries are happening more frequently because we're seeing a population of kids that's heavier and bigger than ever before in past generations of kids, combined with the fact that they're largely more sedentary now than ever before as well, which is a bad combination to have, you know, if we go back within ourselves, you know, 20, 30 years. I know when I was a you know, when I was a you know, six, seven, eight, nine, 10-year-old, even teenager, I was out playing a lot of sports and, and having that general play. I didn't have much technology and I didn't have many video consoles and, and that kind of stuff. And you know, that general play um so being more active and then playing a wide variety of sports you know the theory is that general play and general adaptation to different things and being active is certainly something that can be helped and now we've got a bigger heavier kids but more so you know uh, less active as well as a, as a whole is contributing to some of these acl injury rates we're seeing the other school of thought is is that we're seeing more specialized programs than ever before too so we've got two two ends of the spectrum yeah so we've got the um, now we've got, you know, elite pathway soccer programs where the kids are only playing the one and only sport all year round. Netball, probably not so bad, but certainly soccer and some other, you know, in AFL as well, we're probably seeing a lot more sport specialisation than ever before too, where the kids are just going over and over and over and over at, at that one activity over again without much variety in their, in their weeks and months per year. So that's probably, I think that's a fair assessment of, of why things are happening at the rates they're happening at the moment. Yeah, it's, um, it's it's sad to see though, when you hear those numbers, that the numbers are going up 70%, you know, here, here there, and everywhere over 10, 15, 20 year periods.
0: Let's take a short break and have a quick listen to a snippet from our most recent podcast with orthopedic surgeon, Chris Jones. There were so many fantastic points that Chris raised that it was hard to know which bit to pull out, but take a listen to what he had to say about the importance of getting your knee straight and doing your exercises consistently after having a knee replacement.
2: So that early range is important but the terminal range comes when the swelling comes out of the knee. Um, Getting the knee straight is much more important. I can make your knee bend at four weeks. I can take you to an operating theatre, give you an anaesthetic, and and just gently push the knee and stretch the scar tissue out and make it bend while you're asleep. But I can't make your knee straighten. Uh, You have to make your knee straighten, and your finger has to make your knee straighten, and, and you really have to stretch it out, and it's... If you ask me, is it more important to concentrate on achieving a fully straight knee or a really bent knee, my opinion, in the first six weeks, it's more important on achieving a fully straight knee because I can't address that down the track. Uh, I think doing little bits regularly, not doing a massive chunk. So, so I try and say to patients, go and see your physio, get your exercises and get your physio to, to guide you through the exercises. You need to do the exercises yourself regularly, many times through the day, not do nothing and go to your physio twice a week and do everything in an hour. Yeah. That that not just make your knee swollen. The reason to go to your physio is to get the guidance to, uh, on what to do. You have to go and do it yourself and you have to do it through the day regularly.
0: So, if you want to catch up on episodes 20 and 21 with orthopedic surgeon Chris Jones, jump across to the Perform, Prevent, Recover page, and you'll be able to download that episode and everything else we've done. But for now, let's get back into ACL injuries and Mick Hughes. That's a really good summary. And again, reading this little bit from the Medical Journal of Australia, you know, they were saying that the greatest increase in these ACL injuries and RICO's is in the under 14s, which, as you said, is is yeah. a real worry. And um, uh, it's interesting, you know, you say the longer season and, and the specialisation, because I'm sure you find this, the same. And particularly with some of these kids with their, you know, growth-related pains is that, you know, you in your, in your 30-minute consult, sometimes you ask them to tell you what they're doing and 20 minutes in they're still going through their yeah, age. And <laughs> it's sort of right. staggering how much and how intense and how competitive kids are doing these days. Yeah. And so um and so you really do think that is a factor in 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 injuries per se in kids.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, and not just ACL injuries, it's probably a, a lot of different injuries. They're, they're probably the two main two main features we're seeing. Um, and and yeah, you could probably start delving into the load management then. Um, that probably sort of goes hand in hand a little yep. bit with with training specialisation, but certainly uh, mismatches in load management as well. When you've got kids that are playing multiple sports, that and this, sort of, I guess, you know, takes a slight deviation from the specialisation. But you've got some kids who will also play two or three different sports, which which is great for their movement variation and variability. But when you've got two or three different sports competing for that kid, the training sessions and games and you know they've got these young developing kids going through growth spurts and all sorts of different things you know they've got school demands and it's uh, gosh it's it's just a, a hive of activities hive of activity for these young kids and a lot of them can you know suffer from you know you know stress and anxiety and poor sleep and poor nutrition and um, you know all these things absolutely will will contribute um, yeah. so that it that would be absolutely multifactorial but we're probably they're the, probably the two or three big ones that That we're seeing and and ACL injuries you know that's the king or the queen um, of all the injuries like you know as as we know it's it's the one that will knock the the young athlete out of sport for a a much longer time than any other injury that they'll sustain in the lower limbs.
0: Yeah absolutely and what's the biggest cause of ACLs that that you see like in sports someone comes in what are you finding as the classic causative factor of a of an ACL injury?
1: Yeah it's largely um, about 70 depends on the Paper you read, but about seventy to eighty-five percent of injuries will be non-contact in nature. Yeah, so, which is opposite the,
0: to what people think, isn't it? Yes. Generally?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's right. You hear people's story saying, you know, they, you know, their reaction would be, you know, someone pivoted or twisted, and um, it was like that, that caused the ACL injury. It's like, yeah, like the, it, it's not this brutal direct force to the outside of the knee or a big knee clash or a big crunch crunching tackle. It's more often those really subtle innocuous uh, movements that the person sustained. So landing from a jump and, and looking over their left or their right to then make the next play upfield and and their knee buckling inwards upon that landing, or, you know, they're, they're looking to defeat, uh, you know, burn off a defender. And so they're, you know, they make this really hard cut plant and pivot and their knee buckles in with not a person touching them. Um, So those pure non-contact movements where they're, there hasn't been someone push them or bump them or you know knock them. That, that's obviously considered a non-contact injury. But there's also too a, a second part to these non-contact injuries called indirect contact, um, which make up that 70 to 85%. Now these indirect contacts are, are certainly relatively common in, in sports like basketball, soccer, netball, where the person gets bumped in the air. Um, so their planned landing position or their planned landing strategy is now moved and they haven't really reacted in time so that that bump in the air even though no one no one's knocked into their knee when their land was on their foot was on the ground or their knee was on the ground but their planned landing strategy is now different and so they don't know where to control their body and and unfortunately there's a lot there's a lot of injuries that occur in these indirect contacts as well when there's been a bit of a a force mid-air or just before the person's made a plant and cut they've just sort of thrown them off course a bit so We see those quite a bit, but they're they're by far and away the most common types of um, ACL injuries we see with the remaining 15 to 30% coming from that true contact brute force to the outside of the knee.
0: Yeah, okay. And what about um, gender? Like again, with football, um, having such a a great pathway with females now and you've been involved in netball, which is traditionally a high knee injury sport. Again, the papers and, and we're really driven by papers, which is good because it makes us all a bit more accountable, I think, um, and responsible. But the papers will say women and and, um, females are anything from two to four to two to 10 times more likely to do their ACL. Why?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question, which we don't probably quite know yet very well. Um, But yeah, it is, it's staggering. The 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 difference between males and females, uh, two to 10 times would would be the variance depending on the sport that you're looking at. Basketball and soccer being the most globally played sports by all sort of males and females is about a three and a half times greater risk of a female sustaining an ACL injury in those two sports compared to males. And, And AFL down here, we've only got sort of one data set here to sort of compare to and yeah you know, the early studies are identifying a, a 9 to 10 times greater risk of an wow. ACL injury in AFL women's compared to AFL men's and as we collect more data and as the seasons roll on we'll probably see that come down a little bit over time hopefully um why um it's up for debate there there's certainly probably no hard prospective studies to try and identify why but there's a lot of theory out there and a lot of biological plausible explanations and and Probably one of the big ones is the anatomical differences that exist between males and females. So, so they tend to have a wider pelvis base, which then influences the angle from their hip down to their knee, which can affect then the ACL and the shear forces across the ACL. That, that certainly is, is, a, is a big factor or what, what they, you know, lead to what's led to believe is to be a factor. Um, the ACL also uh, intercon- well, the intercondylar notch inside the knee where the ACL runs. It tends to be a bit more narrower compared to males. Once again, adds to the shearing forces when the person when the female cuts and pivots, twists and lands. The cross-sectional area size of the female's ACL is a little bit smaller compared to males. Once again, making it a little a uh, little bit less robust than than males what else is there the posterior tibial slope um, as well so um, basically where the uh the angle at the knee where the tibia slopes off males it tends to be a bit more flatter compared to females there's a bit more of a slope there that once again adds to the shearing forces um, so they're probably the main um, anatomical differences um of course there's hormonal hormonal influences there too which um research is being uh, as, as i understand it's being really looked at strongly by la trobe university and and stages of um, the menstrual cycle uh, in females, that, that certainly has been proposed as a, probably a big risk factor. And from the top of my head, it's, it's about, um, I want to say, day six to day 10 of the female cycle probably tends to be the, the more riskier period from what some early studies have identified of an injury risk. Um, so there's more work to be done in that space to probably truly say yes, this is um, you know a cause and effect, or is it just a casual relationship from what we're currently seeing? But um, there, there's some definitely uh, some plausible explanations as to why we're seeing these uh, higher rates of ACL injuries in females and males.
0: Yeah. Okay. And it's sort of um, it's it's you sort of think, oh gosh, you're doomed if you're female. But I think this is where your work comes in. Is that us as as physios and strength and conditioning people, you know, just knowing that gives us much more of a chance with our better protocols. To you yeah. know, we'll talk about prevention, but it's not all doom and gloom. We just need to get better with how we um, train uh, everybody for their sport.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that, that's the that's the big thing. Is we we know it's important to know these of things and and we can't for the large part of that we can't really control any of those all those things are non-modifiable um you know there's there's i've heard sort of you know stories of, of elite coaches in female sports in america try to control as much as possible by getting the their athletes to get on the pill so they can at least control the cycle so they know as a unit there um they can train Uh, harder in through certain periods, but then a little bit easier through other periods as well. I've heard stories like that where they'll go to those lengths to try and control that um, non-modifiable part of of the body um, as much as possible, which I think is really um, creates really big moral dilemmas and ethical dilemmas. And I certainly don't, you know, I'd certainly not be advocating for that, but then also to knowing that, you know, the female athlete is probably a high risk as, as a whole. Like we, we, we don't know, and we may get into this conversation a bit later, but certainly from an injury um, prevention point of view, there's, a, it's really hard to, uh, you know, we know some injury prevention programs or injury injury prevention programs do work. Absolutely. They do work, you know, especially um, reducing the risk of um, ACL injuries and non-contact ACL injuries in females. You can reduce them by 67%. Yeah. When you do these injury prevention programs, they just need to be done. But the thing is what we don't, what we can't do very well is, Identify one particular athlete over the other. We don't know by you know screening processes who will get an ACL injury in the future or who won't, based on what we're seeing. So that kind of leads into the argument. Then you know, in injury prevention. Everyone gets the vaccine. You know, everyone, regardless of what their past injury of history is, who that athlete is, is it the male, female, is it old, young? What's their profile? Who cares? everyone does these injury prevention programs, regardless of your injury risks, you know, profile. Um, That's kind of what the key message is there too. Um, Yeah.
0: Okay. And are you seeing as we might uh, get time to talk a bit more later, but your general feel on these injury prevention programs, are are you seeing it more done than not done or vice versa?
1: Yeah, I think it's improving.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's
1: improving. They're pretty accessible,
0: aren't they, the programs?
1: They are, absolutely. It used to be a little bit, yeah, they used to be not accessible at all other than football um, or, you know, you know, soccer. Excuse me, you know, soccer. Um, yeah, the FIFA 11 Plus has been around for years and years and years and they've um, made that largely accessible and freely accessible. Um, and I know a good mate of mine, Matt Wallen, has been involved with the Socceroos and, and the Olly roos. He and his sort of team of researchers have developed a, a program, well, probably an extension and, and a betterment of the 11 Plus program called the Perform Plus, and that's just been released as well. They've got a great website with, um, you know, videos that you can watch and, and um, learn how to prescribe, and you can modify the programs to suit each individual, individual athlete. The Netball Knee as well has done a great job of, um, you know, putting together a great online resource of injury prevention exercises for young netballers, ranging from the the elite junior or recreational junior all the way to you know professional. So they've got four different tiers of exercises and programming to get the best out of that injury prevention program. So I think it is improving based on those um, resources that are out there. But I think if you went back 10 or 15 years ago, when people didn't have you know, internet so freely and certainly some of these um, great online resources at the tip of their fingertips. I think probably you had to be a little bit more proactive in trying to find those resources or be involved in a club that had a few more resources yourself, you know, have, have the luxury of having, a you know, a trainer to go down and run you through the warm-ups and all that kind of stuff or, you know, have, have a parent who's a bit more invested in, in this program and, and injury prevention. And but But now it's certainly becoming a lot more, commonplace but there's still a lot of resistance out there um, to these programs because people i don't know whether or not they think they could do them better better themselves or or whatever it is but there is still barriers out there for some of these programs to be done and and i I reckon it's the community level athlete and the community level kids that have probably got the greatest barriers there because the people who are coaching those those young kids that in that non-elite pathway they're they're largely the mums and dads of, of the kids so those mums and dads you know they're probably of, of our era you know 40s in their 50s and they don't probably don't know any better yet you know they probably have they're doing the things that they did you know 20 30 years ago you know that slow steady jog around the oval or that slow lap around the, the netball court followed by a few stretches and that's the warm up whereas as we know it's it's evolved dramatically in the last 10 15 20 years and we we've now got these really great programs that are structured and a you know, they're, they're programmed specifically to prevent injuries or reduce the risk of injuries, anyway. And, 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 um, yeah, they're, they're, they're out there. It's just really alerting the people <laughs> who, who don't know about them. And I'm, I'm still surprised every now and again, you know, talking to parents of, of young soccer players, netball players, and they, and they haven't heard of the netball knee, no, they haven't heard of the 11 plus. But those people are getting fewer and fewer and fewer as time goes on.
0: Well, That's it for episode 22, and that's only half the story. In the next episode, Mick will continue to talk about ACLs and will cover not only the ins and outs of the surgery itself, but also the decision-making around whether a person really needs a reconstruction. So Mick talks as well about his rehabilitation guide. He talks about the importance of strength in rehabilitation, which muscles are crucial to target, timeframes on return to sport, prevention programs and a whole lot more so you can see why we had to break it into two podcasts. I'm sure there's already heaps of great points and tips you've all gained so thanks for listening and if you haven't already don't forget to hit that follow button to ensure you get notified as soon as we release the next edition with Mick Hughes.